0: It's always a joy to be up here uh, in front of you. It's always an honor and a privilege and a great responsibility. Um, as, all, as already been mentioned this morning, today is Father's Day. So for all of you that are with us regularly and for all of those visitors, uh, we say happy Father's Day. But there, there's one kind of unassailable fact associated with Father's Day. We all kind of know what it is deep down, and it's really this. It boils down to What in the world do I get dad for Father's Day? I mean, dads are just, they're hard to shop for. Who knows what really their hobby is besides falling asleep on the couch in front of the television. And so we're always at a loss. If you were to watch commercials, you may understand that dads apparently just like uh, colorful polo shirts uh, maybe some cargo shorts, although I think they're out of style at this point, but I still like some. Um, but anyway, so why do you get dad? And so this morning, uh, to get us going, I wanted to give you some ideas, uh, some gift ideas. Now, some would call these bad gift ideas, but, but for some of you, you may find you may resonate with some of these if you're looking for a last-minute gift. And so perhaps for your dad, the problem is there's not enough on top of his head. There's not enough hair. And so instead of a silly hat, you could try Tattoo Pays. He could be a walking billboard. He could have some artwork going on, and he could change it for every day of the week. So Tattoo Pays uh, might be the way you want to go. Or perhaps the issue isn't he doesn't have an, enough hair. He, he has too much of it. And so you could get him uh, an ear or a nose hair trimmer. And, and just so it doesn't look too awkward, it, it looks like a finger, a human finger. So he can stick that in his ear or up his nose and trim some of those unsightly hairs. Um, I used mine this morning. So, or perhaps you, you wanna move away from the hair area and you wanna move to fashion and you wanna help dad out and so instead of uh, you know him wearing his, his socks with sandals, just just combine the two and get sandal socks. I mean, who wouldn't wanna see their dad particularly walking down the beach in a pair of sandal socks? Or last but not least for you Star Wars fans out there, there's also a t-shirt option And I'm not sure what this is trying to communicate. It has a picture of Darth Vader, and it says, world's greatest dad. Now, if you're not familiar with Star Wars, let me let you in on something. He's not gonna win dad of the year award. So I don't know what this is trying to communicate, but these are a few options. But for most of us, for most guys out there who are dads, who are fathers, if you just give us a spot to lay down and take an afternoon nap, give us a piece of grilled meat, that 'll equal happiness for us so so in that vein there were uh, there was a guy named Dave Anderson and a group of his college buddies and so they wanted to honor their dads in the best way they knew how, and so they decided they wanted to throw a barbecue for them but here 's the problem: uh, none of their dads could make the barbecue, and so using the college spirit the you know, we don't. We want to adapt and overcome. They decided to advertise on Craigslist. Perhaps you heard about this for a generic barbecue dad. And so let me let, let, let me read you a little bit about what these guys advertised for. It was supposed to take place this weekend. Uh, they were looking for an everyman's dad. And so Dane Anderson and his roommates. Uh, they said that their dads live too far away to come into town for the holiday weekend. And so the boys say they aren't yet prepared to fill the role of a barbecue dad. So they're contracting out the job to interested parties in the Spokane area, so you can't make it today. Anderson goes on to say, we really want a dad. And so here's the Craigslist post titled, it's titled, Needed Generic Father for Backyard Barbecue. And so the perfect candidate should meet many requirements they'd like their quote-unquote dad to have, including a dad name. So here's, here's the specifications. This generic dad should have a minimum of 18 years as a father. He should have a minimum of 10 years of grilling experience. And the ideal applicant should love drinking ice-cold beer on a summer day, and, and if his name is Bill, Randy, or Dave, all the better. <laughs> and aside from these grilling duties of quote-unquote barbecue dad, uh, he'll also need to supply the said grill uh, he'll need to uh, be able to, to drink and chat it up with Anderson and his buddies, preferably while referring to cookout attendees as big guy, chief, sport, or champ. <laughs> and he should be able to discuss superficially dad-like things such as lawnmowers, building your own deck, and Jimmy Buffett. <laughs> so these guys are advertising for their generic barbecue dad. And so here's the problem. The person that fills that role may look like a dad, he might smell like a dad, I'm not sure what that smell is, but he may smell like a dad, he may even grill like a dad, and even have a dad name, but the thing is, he's not the real thing. He's just playing a part. And so these guys are honoring a substitute or a provisional father over and above the real thing. They're settling for a lesser thing. And so in the same way, the writer of Hebrews this morning is going to be continuing his argument in the passage that we're going to look at. In his argument, he's he's pointing to the superiority of Jesus over the old Jewish system of religion. He's urging his audience, the Hebrews, to to remember this fact and to press on and not to turn back to these lesser things. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago in chapter 7, Noah helped us to see that Old religion and the old covenant, they really just served as shadows. And they were pointing to Jesus as the true substance. He is the greater high priest. We read in Hebrews 7, verse 26 and 27, it says, Such a high priest truly meets our needs. One who is holy and blameless, pure and set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he did not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once and for all when he offered up himself. And then last week, Brian was with us. He did an excellent job and he he showed us how Jesus is the mediator of a better covenant with greater promises in the true tabernacle we'll hear more about that later this morning. But in, in chapter 8, verse 6, it says this, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. So in our passage this morning, we'll see that not only is Jesus our great high priest, but Jesus is also the greater sacrifice. And it's only through Christ that we have once and for all access to God and complete purification, complete forgiveness of our sins. Let's pray and then we'll read our passage for this morning. Father God, we do come before you this morning and we cry out to you, we call out to you because you alone are worthy of all praise. And God, as we Open your word this morning. We do pray by the power of your spirit and of your word. Would we leave here different? We ask this morning that you would lead us and guide us. And so that we truly could taste and see that you are good. And Lord help us. Each one of us here this morning. Whatever we are holding on to. Whatever lesser things we are giving our lives to. Would we lay those down this morning? And when we embrace you, Jesus, the greater sacrifice, our high priest, it is through you alone that we have forgiveness of sins. We ask all of this in Jesus' name, amen. And so if you haven't already, if you'll open or or turn on or flip over on your phone to Hebrews chapter 9, I'm just going to read the the passage for us in whole and then we'll begin to work through that. And so Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 14. "...in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded in the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood." sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And so we see in this passage, if we begin to look at it as a whole, you could almost break it down into two large sections Uh, In fact, verses 1 through 10, the author is is making his argument, and he's setting us up for what is to come in the last few verses of our passage today. And so, in essence, verses 1 through 10 discuss the old way of access to God and purification from sins, whereas beginning in verse 11 and moving forward, it represents the new way of access to God and purification from sins. And, and again, we can, we can see this. Uh, it, it, there's also a contrast that begins to play out from the very first verse. Uh, it begins with the word now. And that's an indicator. And then again, we'll discuss in a, in a few moments that verse 11 says but. And so we begin to see this contrast between these two things. And again, the first few verses, first ten verses, it, he's going to discuss the priestly throughout this whole thing, contrast the priestly ministry of Christ in the heavenly sanctuary with that of the ministry of the priest in an earthly tabernacle. And so he says here in verse 1 that under this first covenant, it had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. And in essence, what he is going to describe in the next few verses is is kind of uh, the rules of the game and the playing field on which the game is played. And so the author is setting up what he's about to talk about. He he's going to uh, again begin kind of in reverse order, talking about the earthly sanctuary, and then he'll move on from there. And so, as you move down into verses two through five, he begins to pull out the details. In verse two, he says, "For a tent was prepared," and I just want to pause for a second there on this idea of a tent. Right now, what the author is doing, when he talks about a tent, he's really pulling from, again, we've seen this throughout Hebrews, he's reading and he's pulling from the Old Testament. Specifically here, he's talking about not just any tent, but the tabernacle. We find this in Exodus 25-31, through goes through a bunch of detail about this tabernacle, and then again in Exodus 35-40. to And so, he says a tent was prepared, and again, we all know tents. A tent from the outside looks pretty common, pretty ordinary. But as we'll see in the next uh, verses, that is he describes what's inside this tent. Again, the tabernacle. That again, once you enter into the tent, it's clearly a holy place. And so he's pulling from Exodus. And, and even in our uh, chapter 8 last week, uh, the writer of Hebrews points back there again. And he says, remember about this tent. It is the tabernacle, and he, he said in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, again, pulling from Exodus 25, he says this, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. And so we see right here this tent, this tabernacle, is a shadow of something that God has shown this to Moses, and then he goes on. He says, Not only was a tent prepared, we see in the, uh, these verses, he talks about two sections of the tabernacle or the tent the outer and the inner, the holy and the most holy, or the holy of holies. And so in verse two, he begins to talk about this first section, this outer section of the tent, which is called the holy place. He lists out some of the things in there, some of the furniture, as it were, the, the lampstand, the table the bread of presence. And I think you see in there that these, all of these articles have specific and symbolic purposes. And they're all meant, all of these are meant to lead the people to a place of meeting and worshiping God. And the whole point, in fact, the whole point of the tabernacle is to be a place where the people can meet God. They can be in his presence. This is where God decided to dwell among the people. In fact, Exodus 25 is helpful again Uh, It says in verses 8 and 9, it says, Then have them make a sanctuary for me, and I will dwell among them. Make this tabernacle and all of its furnishings exactly like the pattern I will show you. And so the tabernacle represents both a pattern, but also the presence of God. And so he talks about the first section or the outer section. And then he begins to shift gears as we move forward in verses 3 through 5 and he moves away from this first section or the outer tent and he moves into the second section or the inner tent. And again, he names this the most holy place or the holy of holies. Yet it's it's interesting that as he moves forward into this second section, he, he says it's behind a curtain. And so this section is somehow quarantined or separated off from the outer section. There's the holy place and then this most holy or the holy of holies. It's separated and we see there's also a golden altar of incense. And then he lists the Ark of the Covenant and really he gives a little more detail here. This seems to be a little bit more of the key or the focal point. But again, as we think about the incense, and if you were to read in in Exodus and you hear about the Ark of the Covenant, this really represents God's presence among his people. The mercy seat is where God alone will come and meet his people. It is a holy place. In Exodus 25, verses 21 and 22, again, give us more detail. The author is just kind of giving shorthand right here. Exodus 25 says this And you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. This is God's presence. It's in the Holy of Holies. And the author here in these few short verses, he gives us not everything within the tabernacle. He picks and chooses, but I would say he's not devaluing the tabernacle here. In fact, by a lot of the description, you see that he's dignifying them. He talks about how they're covered with gold. He talks about specific things. And all of these things, I think the author is making the point. He's saying, look, they all point to the fact that God is beautiful, and he's of utmost value, and not just God, but the worship of God should be valuable and important and beautiful. Yet at the end of verse 5, as he's going through all of these details and ideas, he, he says this. He says, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. It's kind of an odd way to end in this section that he's beginning to go through detail and all of a sudden he abruptly kind of quits and says, but, but that's enough. We're not going to speak in detail right now. Why in the world would he say that? Well, I think here's the point. Why does he not go on in detail? I think the fact is this isn't the point of the passage. The point of the passage isn't furniture. furniture. The point of the passage isn't the detail of the articles within the tent. He's just illustrating, taking his readers back to what they already remember, what they know. Because remember, the author of Hebrews, he's a master craftsman of argumentation. He's carrying an argument throughout the entire book and through each of these chapters. And so I think he's doing the same thing here, and, and I think the reason he cuts this short is because the reader could get way off track by focusing in on all these details. Uh, they could begin to get, in, get involved in everything about the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. But again, the point of the passage isn't about these things. It's about something much bigger. Because remember, the readers of Hebrews, the audience, they were already tempted to reminisce. And not just reminisce, they were tempted to remember the sights, the sounds, and even the smells of the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. Even these few details would have begun to take them back. And and for many of them, perhaps a large number of them, were already contemplating in some way, shape, or form, maybe they should go back to the way it was. Maybe they should go back to the old covenant, to the tabernacle to the old religion. And the author right here, when he stops abruptly, he's saying, stop! Quit holding on to these things. There's no value, there's no point in holding on. Let go. You've held on for far too long. And all of us, we we intuitively know that there are times in life where we hold on too long. And holding on too long oftentimes can be a little bit strange, and it can even be awkward. For example, uh, in the Matthias family, we we tend to, we've kind of grouped up all of our birthdays. We celebrate a ton of birthdays beginning in the spring and all throughout the summer. Um, And so this year, uh, we have either celebrated or we will celebrate uh, all four of our daughters. uh, and They are either going to turn or have turned 15, 12, 10, and eight. So it's a great time of celebration. I actually share a birthday with my second daughter, which means I have no birthday uh, until she leaves the house. Um, but anyway, we're celebrating them growing up and getting older, and, and, and we that have children understand that, that your kids growing up is a little bit bittersweet. On one hand, you're, you're excited about that as your kids grow up and they get new opportunities as they move on to some bigger and better things it's a wonderful thing i love that fact but but there are just some days where you miss elements of those younger years you know maybe it's for me in my house full of women it's it's those years where uh, my girls come up on the couch and they snuggle up next to me and kind of fall asleep or uh, maybe it was that day when you're walking down the road and your son or daughter reached up to grab your hand or it's those really mispronounced words that are really cute that you don't want them to give up although you realize they're never going to pass out of the second grade if they don't. (laughs) And of course in my household we did a lot of playing with dolls and dress up and although I would say no, I was embarrassed by that. Man, I love those days. And so now, you know, we think about that and some days we think, man, it would be nice to hold on and so what if this year when we're celebrating, remember 15, 12, 10, and 8... And so to celebrate their birthdays, Paige and I went in together, and we got gifts, and here's what we got our kids. We got them kind of soft-sided chew books. We got them some pacifiers, some new baby dolls, and, and it's summer, so we also put in some swim diapers. I'm sure they would love that. No. For them, it would, not, it would be really embarrassing to get those things. But if you were with us celebrating our daughters, you would think, that's, that's, that's just weird. That's just really strange. And so as parents, we we have to understand that there are times when it's appropriate just to let go and let our kids grow up. Holding on too long is often awkward. But it's not only awkward when we hold on too long, sometimes it literally is the difference between life and death. And so one particular person illustrates this well. Two weeks ago on June 3rd, rock climber Alex Hanold became the first person to ever free solo climb the 3,000-foot granite face of El Capitan in Yosemite's National Park. Now, I don't have a picture, but if you go home and Google later El Capitan or Alex Hanold, uh, you'll have pictures come up, and just looking at those will give you vertigo, make you go into cold sweats. It's, it's a crazy feat that he did, and he did this in under four hours. And so what is free solo climbing? Well, it means that Alex climbed El Capitan with no gear. Repeat, he had no ropes, he had no helmet, he had nothing. He had no gear. And not only did he not have any gear, of course, he, had, he did it by himself. He did it solo. And so goes on, the article I was reading says, at 5.32 a.m., he pulled on a pair of sticky-soled climbing shoes Fastened a small bag of chalk around his waist to keep his hands dry, found his first toehold and began inching his way up toward climbing history. And so, while he was climbing, you can imagine it takes a lot of, of attention to detail and determination. But while he was climbing, Hanold employed a climbing technique, a pretty delicate technique called smearing. And he, here's what this is: smearing. It involves pressing his rubber shoes against the rock to create just enough grip to support his weight on the incline. He had to keep his weight perfectly balanced and maintain enough forward momentum to avoid sliding off. He goes on to say, it, it's like walking up glass. And so for Hanold, if he wasn't moving fast enough and, or if he held on too long, it would mean the difference between life and death. And so, it's not just the Hebrews that need to quit holding on to the past. Perhaps we do as well. What is it that you're holding on to this morning? Maybe it's a past sin, or perhaps it's a past hurt. Maybe somebody hurt you, did something to you, against you. Maybe it's a misunderstanding about God and religion. And so maybe this morning God is telling you to let go and to move on, to press on towards maturity. And so I think that's why he cut it short. It seems at the end of verse 5. And so as the author moves forward in his argument, he, he now turns away from furniture and begins to give his attention to the ministry of the priest within that tabernacle, within these two rooms. And again, he, he's building his argument. He's, he's kind of beginning to reach the meat of his argument of contrasting the old way versus the new way. And so we see in verses 6 through 10, he begins to talk about the ministry, the ministry there. Again, Reading through these verses, in, in verses 6 and 7, once again, he's addressing the division of the tabernacle into two sections. Remember, the outer and the inner are the holy place and the most holy place. In verse 6, he goes on to say, in this holy place, or the first section, the priests, they, they regularly, they consistently enter in and perform their religious duties. Day in and day out, the priest makes intercession for the people. But then in verse 7... He begins to talk about the second section or the Holy of Holies. He begins to describe the uniqueness of this inner section. It's not that the priests go into that section day in and day out performing their religious rituals. In fact, in the Holy of Holies, it's reserved for the high priest alone to enter. And he only does this one time a year, and that's on the Day of Atonement, And the Day of Atonement, if you're not familiar with that, it's essentially, if you were to look at the Jewish calendar, the religious calendar, the Day of Atonement is kind of the highlight, the high point. This is what everything is working towards in the Jewish calendar. And we read more about that in Leviticus chapter 16. It begins to describe what goes on here. And so we'll read a few verses from there. In Leviticus 16, it says that Aaron... Is to offer the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and for his household. Then he is to take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting. He is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. Aaron shall bring the goat whose lot falls to the Lord and sacrifice it for a sin offering. But the goat chosen by Lot as the scapegoat shall be presented alive before the Lord to be used for making atonement by sending it into the wilderness as a scapegoat. And Down to verse 29, this is to be a lasting ordinance for you. On the 10th day of the 7th month, you must deny yourselves and not do any work, whether native-born or a foreigner residing among you. Because on this day, atonement will be made for you to cleanse you. Then before the Lord, you will be clean from all. Of your sins. This is the day. This is what they work towards. This is the day that they come before the Lord. And it says that on this day alone you will be clean. You will be cleansed from all of your sins. And it's a day where there's a lot of blood that flows. And so we see in this passage that it says the high priest goes in. He does not just enter into this room, that he enters and takes not his blood, but the blood of animals. And why does he take this blood? It says, it is for him and the sins of the people and not just any sin. Here it says unintentional, but I like how the Christian standard puts it. It says, it's for the sins committed in ignorance. And so under the old religion, under the sacrificial system, there are all sorts of regulations and laws for dealing with overt sins, hidden sins. But on this day, the day of atonement this high point even those sins that were committed and the people didn't even know about it these two had to be atoned for it was on this day alone they could they could legitimately plead ignorance but ignorance didn't make everything okay before god they still needed to atone for these sins and only the blood of animals could bring about purification And so why does the author pick this point out? I think he's he's painting this picture of the utter sinfulness of the people versus the absolute holiness and justice of God. God expected nothing less than complete purification or cleanliness to come into his presence. And so then he begins to, we move forward in verses 8 and 9, and we begin to see a transition happening. It says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first sec- section is still standing. And then he gives a parenthetical statement. By this. Again, I think we're, we're beginning to see the author mark a shift. He's been discussing Now. He's been talking about this, the tabernacle, the earthly sanctuary, its regulations and practices. And I think the author right here in these verses is beginning to look back and interpret this old covenant and system of worship. Because remember, the author of Hebrews and his audience, they don't live under the old covenant. They live under the new covenant. And so he's beginning to look back and and give some interpretation because I think although they live under the new covenant, they're in a time of transition. That they're still the tabernacle. There's still people worshiping in the old way. And by this, when he says, by this, it's not about the arrangement of the furniture in the tabernacle. I think he's squarely pointing to the fact that the tabernacle is broken into two sections. By this. And again, not just two sections. I think he's really pointing out the first or the outer section. Remember, verses 2 and 6 spoke about this section in detail. And the tabernacle, the way it was set up was designed to move people toward God, yet the people could never really enter God's presence. That was reserved for one person, and for him, he could only do that one time a year. So this tent, this earthly tabernacle and its associated ritual actually stood between the worshiper and God's presence. They could never get beyond that curtain. And he says by this, by this arrangement, the fact that the outer tent, this first section is still standing and he employs the Holy Spirit, the writer is being instructed by the Spirit and he's showing, the Spirit is saying, the people cannot actually draw near to God. Access is limited. And so the tabernacle, which was built after a pattern, which was supposed to represent the presence of God among the people, was supposed to move them, give them access to Him. They were limited as long as the first section stood. And so then He goes on at the end of verse 9 and into 10. I believe that he, he talks about not just the Day of Atonement, but really the entire sacrificial system. And it really speaks to, again, the way that God wanted his people to approach him. They couldn't approach on their own terms. They had to approach God on his terms, yet the entire Old, and the entire Old Testament sacrificial system was set up. Uh, we read over and over, there were uh, every morning and every evening, there were lambs that were sacrificed. Uh, They had to sacrifice uh, double on the Sabbath. They had annual festivals uh, that involved sacrifices. Of course, Passover, there was the Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Day of Atonement, which we've spoken about. There were all sorts of various kinds of sacrifices, and those were just the official ones. In fact, individuals often had to bring other sacrifices as peace offerings and thank offerings. And so... Day in and day out, their old system and the sacrificial system, uh, the people had to come day in and day out, and, and once a year in particular, and they had to offer sacrifices, and yet the cleansing was only temporary. It was a never ending cycle. And they say that if you do the same thing over and over and expect different results, that's insanity. And the Israelites, daily and yearly they performed these sacrifices. They participated in religious ritual, yet all of these regulations and practices could not perfect their conscience. It was only skin deep and it was insufficient. Access to God only comes through the shedding of blood, and under the old covenant and the old arrangement, access was in essence denied to the people. They had worship that dealt with the external. What they needed was worship that dealt with the internal, the heart. And so what does this teach us as we read through this? I think here's the point. Regular and consistent participation in religious activity was ineffective to cleanse the people. Regular and consistent participation in religious activity was ineffective to cleanse the people. I think that was true then and it's true now. And so what do you do if you find yourself trying to approach God, yet you're dealing with sin. You don't know how to be made right before him. And if you look around the world, there's, there's kind of three general ways that people tend to approach God or religion and deal with their sin. We see these listed up here. The first way is that people understand or they, they approach God or a God, religion, and, and they, they feel guilty and they're seeking innocence. And oftentimes it focuses on externals and actions and, and kind of the phrase I put down there, they would say that I've sinned or I've made a mistake. And, and people are, through this way are trying to overcome feelings of remorse and, and they understand there's some need of forgiveness. Or maybe it's not guilty seeking innocent. For some, it's, they, they have a deep sense of shame. And so they want some way to remove shame and to restore honor again. This is a focus much more on relationships and words like humiliation, disapproval, and abandonment. And oftentimes when people find themselves in this position, they would say that people now see me as nothing but a sinner or I'm a mistake. Somehow they're deficient, they're inferior, and they're trying to overcome these feelings. And for these people, they need a new identity in addition to forgiveness. They need a restoration of honor both to the offended party and to the offending party. Or for some, they don't struggle as much with guilt or shame, but, but they're fearful they, they would approach God and their focus is on technique and ritual because they want a sense of control. And they might say my sin or my mistake was God or a God getting me back for something I either did or didn't do. And so I'm going to employ this technique or this ritual because I'm not only fearful, oftentimes there's a lot of anxiety wrapped up in that. And so these people need to be freed from fear and anxiety and trust in the power of God. And it's easy for us to see this in other places and other cultures. We may look at other temples or statues or religious rituals that people perform. And some of those, uh, when we see those, we're, we're appalled at what people would do in the name of religion or spirituality or a god yet they're all approaching God. They, they carry around guilt. They're seeking innocence. They're, they're carrying around shame. They want somehow to, to be restored into a place of honor. They're carrying around fear, and they just, they just want to be accepted. And so we see that around the world, people trying to cleanse themselves through the worship of false gods, yet I think the same's true here. We just do it in different ways, and so perhaps... You're trying to cover up some sort of remorse or guilt, and so the way to cover that up is to deaden your conscience. Maybe you deaden it through relationships or substance, or I could go down a whole list of things. Perhaps you're trying to mask your feelings of shame and inferiority, and how do you do that? Well, maybe you spend time with somebody or people that you know you really shouldn't, because among them you feel superior. Perhaps it's it's spending time on places like Facebook and counting your likes or retweets or streaks on Snapchat. Whatever it is that makes you feel good. People know me. It might even be that you avoid certain people or places because you know they wouldn't approve of your choices. We can try and overcome our fear and rationalize our anxiety and seek acceptance by This sometimes is the worst one of all that we buy into in different ways. Sometimes we try to overcome those things by buying into the lie of religious moralism. If I just do these religious things, then I can control my acceptance by God. This is all false worship. No matter how hard we try or the religious things we do, we cannot throw off our sinfulness and make ourselves clean before God. We're guilty We've brought shame upon God and ourselves, and our only posture before him is one of fear. And even the day of atonement, that high religious day, couldn't completely make the people clean. The Israelites needed a way to move beyond the outer tent. They needed something more than an earthly tabernacle and religious ritual, and so do we. And we begin to see that in the end of verse 10. He says, yet... A time of reformation. He goes on, he says, uh, various washings, regulations of the body, they're imposed until the time of reformation. And this word, this idea of reformation, means the idea of making something straight, straightening it out. It only occurs here in Scripture. And I think the author, once again, is saying, the entire arrangement of tabernacle and ritual needs to be straightened out. The author saying the old system of worship is, it's not that it's broken, but it's ineffective. The old covenant with its earthly tabernacle and regulations of worship was never meant to be sufficient. It was all designed to point to something else, something greater. And then in verse 11, we read, but Christ. And right now your heart should sing. If you've been following his argument, he's pointing out the old system, the old religion, all of these things that people are doing, and it's ineffective. And then he says, but when Christ appeared, and if we read through those verses, it's actually two, just two sentences in four verses, two long sentences. And the entire subject of each of these sentences is Christ. He's the subject. He's the centerpiece because he changes everything. He made everything straight. He made it right. He inaugurated this time of reformation. The old way of relating to God is done. Now there's a new and better way. And we read through these verses, and we, I just want to highlight a few things as we work through these verses. It says, again, Christ is the subject And what does it say he did? He appeared and then he entered. He appeared and he entered. And what did he appear and enter? Into the holy places. He he appeared and entered into the holy places through the greater and the more perfect tent. And again, this tent isn't made by human hands. It's different than everything the authors just described. And he didn't just enter into the holy places. How did he do it? He didn't do it by, by means of blood of the Uh, the blood of goats and bulls, he did it by his own blood. And the result of all of that, he secured eternal salvation. And he didn't just secure it, he did it once and for all. It is permanent and lasting. And through the perfect blood and sacrifice of Christ, access is opened once and for all and guaranteed eternally. And the author of Hebrews shows this later when he declares in verse 24, For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. And so we move into the last couple of verses and the author is still, he, he's, he's proving his point here. Again, it's one, one sentence. And again, the author in these two verses is making kind of a lesser to greater argument. He says, for if, or you could almost read it, since the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer, sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more That which is lesser, how much more? This is greater. Will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he will purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. If verse 13 is true, and that's the whole point of the passage, then we can have greater confidence in Christ. What was ineffective is now made effective. Christ is the greater and the complete sacrifice. Jesus really is greater. He didn't have to even carry the blood of bulls and goats into the Holy of Holies as the high priest did. Jesus offered himself fully and completely. And Spurgeon says this. He says, note what it was that Christ offered. And be sure that you lay great stress upon it. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself? What a splendid word that is. Did he offer his blood? Yes. But he offered himself Did he offer his life? Yes, but he especially offered himself. Now what is Christ? The anointed of God. In his wondrous complex nature, he is God and man. He is prophet, priest, and king. He is, but time would fail me to tell you what he is. But whatever he is, he offered himself. The entire Christ was offered by Christ. He offered himself. He offered himself. Dwell on this. Christ was in the more perfect tent. And in fact, in these verses, it brings the whole Trinity to bear God, Christ, and the Spirit. This is a big deal. Now we can be completely purified from the inside out. Jesus is the greater sacrifice. Only through Christ do we have access once and for all to God and complete purification or forgiveness of our sins. The centerpiece of our worship is now a person, it's not a place. Jesus himself invites us to come to him and it's only in Jesus one can find innocence instead of guilt, honor instead of shame, acceptance instead of fear. It's not found in ritual earthly worship. And why does he do all this? The last part of verse 14 says to be purified so that we can now serve the living God. We're now free from the bondage of dead works. We're released to serve the living God and the author gives more detail as we move forward. In chapter 10, he points out things like prayer and praise, encouragement and exhortation, gathering together. And one quick example, as we come close to the end, if we're set free to serve the living God, we have ample opportunities here at North Wake to live that out. One practical way is today you can sign up in the lobby for our study serve switch. And I would encourage you to think about, I'm free to serve with joy, and particularly to think about our children's ministry. Almost every semester when we switch, we have to spend time week after week saying, please come serve one of the children's classes or else they might be canceled. It shouldn't be that way. If we have been released from our dead works to serve the living God, then let's serve with joy and freedom even in the children's ministry, and so I would encourage you to do that today. And so Christ alone entered through the perfect tent and gave himself the effective once-for-all sacrifice to bring about complete forgiveness, restoration of honor, and he alone allows us to approach God without fear. And the author of Hebrews drives this point home in Hebrews 10 19 through 22. He says, therefore, brother, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. So now, through the greater and permanent sacrifice of Christ, Christ you can be cleansed and now you can confidently boldly even approach God and serve him freely and so maybe this morning you're settling for something less than the great sacrifice of Christ maybe you're still trying to approach God through re- religious rituals that are empty you're simply hoping that if you do enough God will forgive you he'll forget your shame and allow you to come to him on your own terms But the author of Hebrews has reminded us this morning that there's only one way to access God, and that's through Christ. And for some of you this morning, you simply need to be reminded of this fact. You need to repent and then draw near to God. And for others of you, you've never. You've never placed your faith in Christ, your trust in Christ. You've placed your faith and trust in everything but him. And so that means this morning you have an opportunity for the first time to lay down your guilt, your shame, your fear, and you can be made clean. You can come home to the only good and true Father, God. Whatever you, wherever you find yourself, I want to invite you this morning to come forward, to approach God, to pray, to seek counsel, and quit holding on to old religion and religious ritual. Don't settle for something lesser when you can have that which is greater. You can have perfect forgiveness, cleansing, and complete access to God through Jesus. Let's pray. We do ask you this morning, God, again through your spirit, would you work your word deep into our lives. And and Lord, I pray this morning for all that are here. Maybe it's a matter of repentance that we're contemplating turning back to religious ritual and we've forgotten that we are completely accepted through the blood of Christ but for still others Lord they're, they're trying to come to you on their own terms. Lord they feel a deep sense of, of guilt or shame or fear but Lord this morning would they hear that they can lay all of that down that Christ has once and for all paid the price so that even they can have access to God. And so this morning we commit this time to you. Lord, we thank you for your word in Jesus' name. Amen.